Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with the loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in a storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let the steadfast love of the Lord be upon us even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. Uh, The series title is The Gospel According to Exodus, and we are going to begin in chapter 2. But if I can tack on the very last verse of chapter 1 in order to start, and I encourage you to follow along with me. I'm going to read a few verses and then make some comments, and then we'll consider some implications at the end. But beginning at verse 22 of chapter 1, the very last verse of chapter 1, and then I'll work my way into the second chapter, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Remember this happened right after the story of the midwives in chapter 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, what phrase stands out to you as maybe, let's just say, the weirdest phrase in that, uh, in that particular? Now, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a There's a pharaoh trying to kill babies, and there's a mom that puts her son in a basket. But for some reason, the 
the verse that really sticks out to me is, why is that there, is the one um, where she says, uh, when, she saw that her, when she saw that he was a fine child, she, she hid him three months. Now, what is with that? Like, if she'd had an ugly baby, this would have been, uh, well, I don't know about this one. I mean, every mom, every mom, and sometimes it's funny, right? I mean, sometimes it is funny. What moms think is cute. You know, I mean, I had like quadruple chin going on. I was an ugly kid as a baby, you know, and, uh, and my parents thought that I was so, uh, so cute. So now what is with this? When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, I just got to tell you this. Guess what the literal translation of this is? She saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. Now, this is the first section, okay? There weren't chapters when it was written. So let's say this is the very beginning of the book of Exodus. And it says, and she saw that it was good. Now, what does that remind you of? Genesis, doesn't it? So you got this sentence that kind of sticks out there like, what? what mom doesn't think her child is beautiful and different translations handle it in different ways but weirdly similar to the creation account where god did something amazing in a scenario that was chaos formless and void and now all of a sudden god steps into this and he does something and he starts to bring order and he starts to do something cool in creation and he looks at it and he says that's good that's good that's good that is very good So that's interesting. Maybe this phrase is used here at the beginning of Exodus to remind us of the beginning of Genesis and to show us that God is creating again. My argument here is that the first chapter of Exodus is comparable to the first verse of Genesis talking about and the earth was formless and void and darkness hung over the face of the deep. And then chapter two of Exodus is similar to what God begins to do there through the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis and chapter 2 of Genesis. God inserts himself into formless and void and does good things. Now, if that's the case, what is he creating in Exodus? If we're supposed to see that little clue and say, that kind of reminds me of the beginning of the only other book of the Bible at this point, That kind of reminds me, it's at the beginning of this one, it's the beginning of that one. So it's about creation, it's about God coming into formless and void in order to bring order. So what is it that he's making in chapter, what is it that he's making in Exodus? He's making a people. He's making a people. This is the genesis, can I say, of the people of God, where God takes them out of slavery and he brings them to Sinai and eventually to the promised land and he makes... He creates a people for himself, and his goal is that he would be worshipped by that people. Isaiah 43, he calls them my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. That's important. Why did God do the Exodus? Why do we have this book? He says, my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God formed, God made, God created 
the Jews. He created his people. And this is a major Bible theme. This isn't just in the first couple of chapters of these two great books of the Pentateuch. But this is a major Bible theme that God makes a people for himself. Even still, even this morning in this little room here, God made a people for himself. First Peter chapter 2, but you Christians are a chosen race. Well, that sounds familiar. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So this is the because statement. This is why you were made God's people, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those are creation words. Once you were not a people, Exodus words, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So implication here is that we are designed to be gathered by God to praise him. We are designed to be gathered by God to praise him. We're designed. We did not evolve randomly. We were designed. And we were designed to be gathered. We are not supposed to be aloof from the church, better than the church, separate, isolated from the church. We're designed to be gathered by God, not by amazing pastors, not by celebrity church people, not by a certain kind of worship style or whatever it may be. We are designed to be gathered by God to praise him. That's the purpose of the gathered church. It's not that we can all find personal fulfillment. It is so that God can be glorified by a group of people that he made for exactly that purpose. And I don't think I'm reading too much into this passage. It's just one word, right? It's just that Hebrew word tov. God said it was tov. God said it was good. But I'm thinking because it's the beginning of this book, similar to the beginning of the last book, I think what we see here is God creating a people for himself and we see him doing the same thing. Uh, today in the church. Now, in verse 5, the story continues. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moshe because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, God is not mentioned in this paragraph, but I would suggest that he's the main character here, right? Because this is written like a miracle. It's written like a miracle story. Babies were being killed in the Nile, but Moses floats on the murder water and was saved by this nice lady. Plus, you've got this irony (laughs) that Pharaoh actually pays for the clothes and education and the raising and food of all of the guy who's going to end up leading the exodus that he's trying to prevent by murdering all the babies in the water. I mean, the irony is kind of amazing. And so what it shows you here is that God is doing something. He's not even mentioned here, but like the book of Esther, he's still the main character. 
He's doing something. He's moving events however he wants so that the deliverer of Israel ends up coming from this incredible event of floating on the water that was supposed to kill him. It's interesting to me also that women have the biggest parts here. Again, like the last chapter, you remember? The midwives. And I think especially Moses' mom is interesting. This was a huge risk. And, you know, we, again, we have that temptation to make a felt board story out of this. But can you imagine the stress she was under to kill her baby and how desperate you got to be to put him in this kind of a situation? It's, it's kind of amazing uh, what happened here. And so she's interesting to me. She takes this huge risk and uh, sends the baby downstream to Pharaoh's house. I mean, isn't that kind of the opposite direction you would be thinking about taking a baby that Pharaoh's trying to kill? Uh, if you're going to float the baby in a certain direction, you're, she floats him toward <laughs> Pharaoh's daughter. I just think it's interesting, and there may be parts of the story that we don't know, but this is a lady of, of courage, and she figures out how to save her baby without breaking the law, so she's a lady of dignity also. And um, you wonder at this point where Moses' father is. A lot of different stories have men as the main characters or something. You kind of wonder where the dad is in the same way that you wonder where Joseph went in the New Testament. Uh, mostly a story about a mom and a baby. Both of these moms, Moses' mom and Mary, both of them have a baby that a king wants to kill. Both of them have miraculous events surrounding the birth. Both of them have boys who end up being the leader of many, many hundreds of thousands of people being released from slavery. In Moses' case, it was literal shackles and slavery. And in the case of Christ, we're told in the book of Romans that we are slaves to sin until we are set free by Christ. These ladies are really similar wouldn't surprise me if we get to heaven and we have a hard time telling them apart like Amy and Diane. These guys are typological twins. They lived at very different times in history, and yet they're really similar, aren't they? Moses' mom and Mary. It's no mistake that the birth of Christ and Moses are similar. That's on purpose. When Jesus was born, God was doing something familiar. The Old Testament often functions like that, like a template for the New Testament. See, God lays down roads in the Old Testament, and then he drives the semi-truck Jesus down that road in the New Testament. Think about all the unexpected Savior babies in the Bible. Unexpected, like babies that came to, to barren moms or old moms. You know, Isaac. Isaac is born to these geriatric parents. You've got... Um, Samuel, who's born to a mom who was barren, and uh, Samson, too. Samson ended up delivering the whole country as uh, he was kind of a goofball as an individual, but God used a goofball like Samson in order to deliver the country, but his mom was barren also, and he was also a miraculous birth. I think uh, Obed, remember who his parents were? Ruth and Boaz. Yeah, that was kind of miraculous, too, and it was miraculous because of what Ruth ends up doing, this unbelievably crazy reverse proposal that she does in that book also has marks of 
beauty and dignity and God all the way through the story. So you've got all of these unexpected savior babies. You know, Obed ended up saving Naomi's line, which had died out. And ultimately, he became the great-great-grandpa of King David. So you've got a lot of unexpected savior babies in the Bible. And so you've got roads that God paves in the Old Testament, and then he drives the big Jesus semi-truck down that road so that when Jesus comes, we see that God is doing something familiar. This is the kind of thing that God does. He saves people miraculously by sending deliverers in this unexpected and miraculous way. And all of that similarity, I think, gives us confidence in God. God knows what he's doing. He does the same thing over and over and over. Uh, and it gives us a sense of predictability that, okay, this is a God that I can trust because God does stuff like this. And as I've said so many times recently, I think it's so cool that the thing that he does over and over and over has to do with a mom and a baby. So this isn't just about nations. This isn't just about people like Pharaoh. He's a bit player here. We don't even know his name because this is about a mom and a baby that end up creating this deliverance for a whole bunch of people trapped in slavery. That's just a cool story. For God to repeat that over and over and over, that's the kind of God we have. All right, so the story continues. I'm going to read through verse 22, beginning at 11. I'm going to read through 22. Now, one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian king beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So we're already starting to see Moses act like a deliverer here. It's almost like he has kind of an inborn DNA, almost a, just a kind of a, he knows in his marrow that he is a deliverer of people and he feels the injustice and so on. So verse 12, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I know I said I was going to read through 22, but I can't help myself here. This is a common theme also through the rest of the Pentateuch. And that is that God's people reject the deliverer that God sends. Because what he says here, uh, who made you, boss, you know, who made you the, the jello prince or whatever, uh, you know, that this happens over and over is Moses being rejected by the very people that God sent him to save. Uh, what we see in the first couple of chapters of Exodus is like a prelude, almost a table of contents type of thing of things to come. So we're going to see a bunch of this stuff happen again. We're going to see people leaving Egypt going down to the area of Midian. We're going to see people rejecting Moses. We're going to see a bunch of these kind of things happen again. Okay, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Wouldn't you love to know the backstory of what's all going on here? We'll have to rent the video when we get up in heaven. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, 
And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Key word in that section, delivered. Verse 19, and they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. This is who Moses is. It's what God made the dude to do, was to deliver people. And yet here he is at the end of verse 22, and we're going to see things change next week. The awesome story of the burning bush. We've got, but, but right now things are not so great for Moses. And uh, it, it reminds us a little bit about Joseph a few chapters earlier, uh, where he's all of a sudden uh, in a really bad spot. And it looks like the story's over. He's massively alienated. Not just from Pharaoh's house where he was raised, his mom and all of those folks, but he's also alienated by his racial people. He's alienated from the Jews as well. So he's gone. He's out of the picture. And you think, okay, well, that was kind of a cool story, but it's over. But God has more to do with him, and we'll see that next week. Now, this whole chapter is framed by a very important Bible symbol, and that's water. It starts with water, and it ends with water. And in both cases, the water is a form of deliverance, and that's not a mistake. The whole chapter is framed by water, which is a really important symbol in the Bible. Moses floats on the murder water at the beginning of the chapter, and Moses saves the ladies with water at the end. And again, it's not a mistake that this happens this way. It's no mistake that water is so important in telling this story. See, with Moses, um, first of all, you've got him floating on the Nile. Then you've got him watering Jethro's flock in that key section in verse 19, he delivered us. Later on, the Nile is going to be used for the curses, turning the Nile to blood. and uh, That'll be one of the things God uses in order to glorify himself, which results in the people finally leaving. They are going to pass through the Red Sea. A lot of water going on in that one. And a really cool moment of the birth of, uh, of uh, this whole nation as they pass out of captivity into the wilderness and eventually the promised land passing through the Red Sea. You've got water from the rock going on in this passage, uh, in, in this book. We're going to see it later. And then later on, they're going to set up all these rules at Mount Sinai for how God's going to tell them how to worship me. And basically, he's going to say, look, when you're doing stuff at the temple, the stuff that you use, the utensils, need to be clean. So you need to wash them. And God uses the word sanctified. So all of these utensils, tongs and stuff for flipping stuff on the altar, these things need to be washed. They need to be washed in water, ceremonially cleaned, uh, and same thing happens with people. You get a weird rash or something like that. You are washed and made clean. And the point of this water then is if it's used on the people that are not clean and if it's used 
uh, for utensils, then they can be used for worship. If, you know, the utensils can't be used if they aren't ceremonially sanctified. And the people can't be part of uh, the community. They have to go outside the camp unless they are ceremonially clean and washed. So water is a really important symbol that we see all the way through Moses's life. And there's another guy in the Bible that uses water all the time. Again, Jesus. Jesus shows up in this passage here, baptized in the Jordan River. Eventually, you know, the uh, Israelites are going to pass through the Jordan River. But, uh, but uh, Jesus was baptized in there. His very first miracle, turning water into wine, wine being symbolic of wrath and blood and Old Testament substitutionary death and water being an example of purification that happens to make people clean. It's his very first miracle. Uh, these are symbols. He walks on water. Jesus calms the sea. He calms the Sea of Galilee at one point in order to show his dominance over water. He commissions his disciples to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A lot of water going on with the most significant people in the Bible. And that symbol of water doesn't just look forward to Christ, but it also looks back to Noah. A lot of water happening in that story too. Noah would have been killed by the waters, except God gives him plans for an ark. Moses would have been killed by the waters, except that God provides a little ark for him too. These are not mistakes. God does this kind of thing. God saves on the very waters that were meant to kill. Now these symbols and these similarities that we see in the Bible are not mistakes. This is the same kind of a thing that we see in a classic piece of literature, right? So the English majors in the room, you're familiar with this. You've seen this before. You remember the the eyes and the green light and the great Gatsby and stuff like that, right? You remember high school and you remember the symbols. Great authors use these kind of symbols in order to communicate. These aren't just cute little literary flares, though, that we see in the Bible. These are symbols that are used on purpose to teach us. Water represents purity. Ultimately, it represents salvation, often used in the context of delivering or sanctifying. Moses and Jesus are surrounded with water, and we understand what water is for. You get cleaned by water. Have you, you seen in the news this last week of this guy that they call the dirtiest man on earth? Hadn't bathed in 50 years, and he smokes a pipe with cow dung or something like that. The guy's dirty. Yeah, he's a dirty guy, and he needs water. He needs to be bathed. And we know, like I was just imagining moms all through the world seeing the picture of this guy thinking, just give me 10 minutes with a loofah sponge with this guy because he was just so mangled and everything. So we know what water's for. We know what water does. And God uses water all the way through the Bible as a powerful symbol of what he does in making people qualified to come into his presence and worship him. Jesus talks about springs of living water gushing out of him for eternal life. That water symbol is woven into the Bible, creating familiar plot lines And it allows us to make connections to all kinds of different parts of Scripture. God does this kind of thing. Bunch of other different familiar plot lines here. Moses is incapable of saving himself, right? He's a baby. He can't save himself. 
He's condemned to die, and we too are incapable of saving ourselves, and so we need the intervention of God in order to bring us into his kingdom. Moses was saved from death, and we too are saved from death, and water becomes that symbol of our salvation also. Baptism, we fill that little thing as a symbol of what happens in a person's life when they become a Christian. They are buried with Christ in baptism and brought up again to newness of life, having been washed from their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so baptism shows what literally happens. Baptism is a symbol that shows us what literally happens when we are saved. When we repent for our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. That's what water does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's also interesting, we're looking at familiar plot lines here, interesting that the waters that saved Moses were the same waters that killed most of the other babies. And we too are saved by death. We're saved by death, the death of Jesus Christ, the exact penalty that most suffer and end up experiencing eternal conscious punishment in hell. Lots of different plot lines here. There's a mother and a baby at the center of the stories of Moses and Jesus. There's a murderous king. There's miraculous escape. Both of these stories uh, tell us about a man who make a people out of slaves. So there are lots of symbols and lots of repeated plot lines here. And I just want to say a couple of things about this because this isn't just a piece of literature, but it's history. And so let's just think about what do these symbols teach us and what do these familiar plot lines teach us? And first, I want to say that all of these familiar plot lines and all of these repeated symbols show us that God has authority over all things. He has authority over all things. He can tell this story however he wants and he weaves in all this cool stuff to the extent that he writes history with artistic flair. Have you ever thought about that? God plays history better than Yo-Yo Ma plays the cello. He's in control of it. He's in authority over it. And he plays history with an artistic flair, weaving in symbols and familiar plot lines so that a reader, like any great reader of history, notices what the artist is doing here as he goes along. When God, as an author, uh, makes up a place... It exists. No other author can do that. When God weaves a plot line, it happens. The words come alive. All through the Bible, you see literary symbols and motifs like you see in classic literature, and that's because God is sovereign, and he can do that kind of a thing. And his word is alive, and he rules nations, and he guides history, and he does it all with beauty and artistic flair. That's cool. God made us with this inborn love for stories. Everybody loves a good story. And that's why we resonate with heroic plot lines. We love stories about heroes because God made us to love him. So anything that sounds like him makes our hearts skip a beat. God created us to love a great story, particularly this story, a true story about him saving ordinary people like us. So what does all this mean? That's cool, but what does it mean? When we talk about trusting God, if what I've just said is true, 
And this isn't just some author coming along later and embellishing stories, which is what you hear in most liberal commentaries, is these symbols and familiar plot lines are kind of forced into the story in order to make it more uh, acceptable. But if it's the other way around, if it's what I'm saying, that God actually rules the story, and as an author, he does this on purpose, and he can because he's sovereign. If that's the case, then when we talk about trusting God, we're trusting this kind of God. We're trusting a God who wields creation with ease and with a love for redemption over and over and over again and with artistic flair. Every detail of our lives somehow fit into a story. He takes a short story about murdering babies and he turns it into an epic about the birth of a nation. God does stuff like that. And if God does stuff like that and actually cares about little people like midwives and Moses' little sister becomes a part of the story, if God actually cares, then he can be trusted with my life too to work all things for good. So when we see repeated plot lines and themes and symbols in Scripture, they remind us that God rules history and he rules it well. Therefore, he can be trusted with our lives. Another thing that all of these familiar plot lines and symbols teach us is what's most important to God. If an author repeats something, then it's important to that author. And God, as an author of history, tends to do a lot of the same thing over and over again in order to kind of like sign his name on these moments of history is like, yep, I did that, and I did that, and I did that. Hey, remember this? I did it here. I also did it there, and I did it there, and I'm going to do it again. And he signs his name on this stuff. It shows us what's important to God. It is part of the author, capital A, being clear to us as a reader. The epistle genre, all these letters in the New Testament, give us propositional statements to emphasize different ideas. But in the narrative genre, Old and New Testament, God uses stories, and he is a great storyteller. When we see repeated plot lines and symbols like this, they are, they are important to us for understanding what God is trying to emphasize. And the Passover meal is a great example of this. God, through the meal of the Passover, he tells the story of how he saved us. And then he says, eat the story. That's just really cool. We're going to do that later this morning where Jesus came and he took the Passover meal and adopted it to himself. He fulfilled the Passover meal so that when we do this together, we are remembering what God did. But we're not just signing a doctrinal statement. We do do that. As Christians, propositional truth is important. And so we do read and study and sign things like doctrinal statements. But there's more than that. We eat doctrinal statements And we do it together. I mean, isn't that fun to have a meal with the people that you like the most? And so what God says is, okay, here's what I'm going to do. When you get together to have the meal together, remember all of this stuff and eat it together. That's the kind of God that we have, is he emphasizes the things that are most important to him by weaving them into these beautiful, experiential situations all through the scripture it's edible theology we are meant to experience doctrine and so all of these familiar plot lines teach us that theology is not just meant for our head but we're supposed to smell it 
We're, suppo- we're supposed to snuggle up to it. We are meant to enjoy the truth, not just agree with it, not just, fine, I'll do it, but God, <laughs> God created his ways and explains wisdom in such a way that is meant to be enjoyed. His word is meant to be savored. It's not just about memorizing trivia in Scripture, but it's ruminating on it like a dog with a bone. So the birth story of Moses reminds us of all these other Bible stories, and this is by design. When we read the account of Jesus' birth, it's supposed to sound familiar so that we say, oh, that's something God is doing. This is the kind of thing that God does. It affirms that Jesus is at least as important as Moses when we start seeing some of these things happen. And it affirms that Jesus is about to do something like Moses when we see all these similarities between their birth accounts. And when we start to make all those connections through Scripture, we grow in our confidence that God knows what he's doing and he does all things well. And he can be trusted with our lives and we can understand and enjoy him. God does save people. And we're going to see that all the way through this book of Exodus. But it's not just some story that happened 3,500 years ago. God saves people today and this morning. God sends deliverers all the way through history and ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. And he sends little miniature lowercase d evangelists and preachers to also explain these truths to us and draw attention to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. God does wash our sins. And we see that over and over throughout the Bible. God is a sin washer. God does work miracles. He does them over and over. God does rule the nations. God does direct our paths. Let me just close with just a couple of verses from what Brian read to us earlier in Psalm 33. Just listen to this. This is just beautiful. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man, that's us, From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants on the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive from famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you are mighty, you are awesome. You can do anything that you want and you do all things well. You have ruled history and played it better like a great uh, artist, like a great musician. You have played history and written into it your signature so that we would know that you are good 
and you are powerful and gracious. You are a savior of people and you care about little ordinary people like us. We thank you for sending us the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for washing us from our sins because of his substitutionary death on the cross. And we praise you for all of this, Lord. We trust you and we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.